My name is Charles Louis. I'm the medical director of the inpatient pain service at Cedar Sinai in Los Angeles. And uh, I have no disclosure, neither do the co-authors uh, of this um, uh, of this talk. To my right is Shona Melvin, one of the nurse practitioners who, uh, you know, clinical staff on the inpatient pain service. And to her right is uh, Christine Easterling, who's uh, the senior management assistant who also uh, helped us compile uh, the data for this talk. I also have to add that um, the opinion I'm going to represent, discuss, and express during this talk are based on our clinical experience and do not necessarily represent the opinions of the Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. And finally, uh, everything I'm going to discuss is off-label. So we're going to identify the benefits of uh, low-dose IV naloxone, and we're going to discuss, uh, I will, I'm going to try to present you the evidence for the use of low-dose IV naloxone to prevent and reverse uh, opioid in, several opioid-induced side effects. I'll also touch briefly on uh, one of the mechanisms that best explains uh, these properties. So... Um, we know with the current opioid crisis that uh, the naloxone is a hot topic. In fact, this is one of the questions in one of the recent uh, Jeopardy uh, show about naloxone uh, being used to reverse uh, the respiratory depression secondary to opioid overdoses. But what most uh, practitioners in the healthcare arena do not know is that there's the other applications that, that are being supported by extensive, fair amount of literature. And um, these side effects include, the, uh, we're going to discuss so, the side effects that include the opioid-induced pruritus, nausea, ileus, urinary retention, and opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Because these side effects contribute to unnecessary uh, discomfort for our patients and prolong uh, the length of stay, which is uh, also an important topic these days. We all know that naloxone is a mu opioid receptor antagonist. And um, in fact, naloxone, the FDA has approved naloxone only to reverse the um, uh, the reversal of the respiratory depression from, from opioid overdoses. Now, I mentioned here, I want to spend a minute or so on the dosages that we find pop out in, online or in the literature about this, uh, the doses to reverse an opioid, dose of naloxone to reverse an opioid induced, uh, from an opioid, actually, the reversal of the respiratory depression from an for opioid overdose, because um, this came about from an American Heart Association recommendation in 2004. In 2010, the AHA uh, updated its recommendation to include a range that went from 40 microgram, which is 0.04 milligram, up to 2 milligram of intra, uh, intravenous naloxone. But they recommended that we start at 40 microgram. That's 
from the practical point of view, one takes an ampule of 0.4 milligram of naloxone, dilutes it 1 to 10, and administers uh, 1 cc every minute. The reason it's important to, to talk about this is because naloxone can have some nasty side effects. And for one thing, high-dose naloxone can induce pulmonary edema. If given with the, on the patient who takes nalo, uh, clonidine, the patient can the naloxone can drop the blood pressure. And naloxone by itself can cause the other problem that we really worry about is reversal of opioid, uh, causing inducing opioid withdrawal on the patient who is opioid tolerant. And um, that can cause hypertension, tachycardia. Uh, naloxone by itself can cause hepatotoxicity. And uh, the, the, you can also observe uh, uh, cardiac arrhythmia, including uh, ventricular fibrillation. So naloxone can be nasty, just as an FYI. The other problem, the other point that I want to emphasize about the pharmacology of naloxone is that it's the half-life of naloxone can be as short as 30 minutes. So after you resuscitate a patient from naloxone, you have to observe it for two hours at least because the half-life of most opioids that patients take in the hospital or at home is at least two hours. All right, let's talk about the literature, and that's probably the most interesting part to me. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, there was another part, part, point that I want to talk about in the pharmacology. Uh, the, at least when it comes to opioid-induced uh, hyperalgesia and... Um, and uh, opioid tolerance, we, the best model that explains that is involves the G protein, which is a, an intermediary step that in, to which the opioid binds. In other words, the G protein is in between the opioid and the mu receptor. When the opioid binds to the G protein, the mu receptor is activated and provides analgesia and provides respiratory depression. And the usual doses of naloxone that are given will reverse these effects. However, there's a second G protein um, that has the opposite effect. In other words, high doses of opioids and chronic use of opioids will induce opioid tolerance and opioid-induced hyperalgesia. If you, if, you give to the, if you give the patient a very low dose of IV naloxone, that amount of naloxone will bind to the scaffolding that's intermediate between the G protein and the mu receptor and will reverse this effect. So that's just to give you an example. I'm not going to dwell too much on the uh, uh, molecular level of the mechanism, but I just wanted to give you a flavor. All right, let's talk about the uh, literature review. The earliest evidence was actually published by Dr. Gann, who's one of our distinguished speakers at, at this conference. And it was, that was published in 1997. And this uh, involved 60 patients undergoing total abdominal hysterectomy. They were divided into two groups. Uh, one, they all received morphine PCA, and the, the treatment group received the IV naloxone. And um, at 0.25, the first the low-dose group received naloxone at 0.25 microgram per kilogram per hour. The high-dose group received one microgram per kilogram per hour, and the control group received normal saline. 
And the results was that the naloxone doses were equally effective in reducing the incidence of nausea, vomiting, and pruritus compared to placebo. And that was a significant result. In addition, the authors noted that the cumulative use of, of morphine was lowest in the low-dose group compared to the, the, to the control group and compared to the high-dose naloxone group, perhaps implying that at one microgram per kilogram per hour, we may be beginning to reverse some of the analgesia. Now let's, uh, uh, let's look at also these doses, the zero point, the, the one, especially the one micro per kilogram per hour. In 2011, um, Monito and other co-authors did a, a dose escalation study in 59 pediatric patients. They wanted to determine what was the lowest, what is the lowest dose of adenaloxone that will provide 90% effectiveness to relieve the opioid-induced pruritus. And that turned out to be one microgram per kilogram per hour. So it's interesting that Dr. Gann had already uh, guessed uh, or at least uh, figured out that that was a reasonable dose to, to provide to the patients. Let's skip one slide and move forward to 2011. Uh, Murphy and other uh, co-authors did a meta-analysis of uh, eight, eight randomized control study. There were 800 patients for, uh, involved, and the prim primary outcome was the incidence of pruritus and the reversal of adenaloxone. And the pooled analysis pr concluded that naloxone was associated with a decrease in pruritus and nausea without any increase in pain score. So by 2000, move forward back, we're going back one slide. By 2015, there was a preponderance of evidence that um, ivinaloxone, low-dose ivinaloxone reverses opioid-induced pruritus. So West and other co-authors uh, stated that in their, in their publication but uh, they, decide, they thought perhaps we could do it in a less cumbersome way. Because the study by Dr. Gann and by uh, uh, Murphy, uh, in that study, the avinaloxone was given in separate lines. The study by Monito, which involved the, the dose escalation study, in that, for that study, the naloxone was piggybacked into the same line. So that seemed to work. And they said, well, what if we actually mix the naloxone and the morphine in the same container? So they uh, studied, uh, involved 92 patients um, in a double-blind randomized control study, and they, the, out, the, stu the outcome was uh, severity of pruritus. And their conclusion was that there was no decrease in the incidence or severity of the opioid-induced pruritus in this sample. However, if you read the paper in more detail, you realize that there were two groups of patients who were receiving uh, morphine. One group was receiving morphine as a continuous opioid infusion. The other group was receiving it as a PCA, intermittent doses, with the naloxone mixed in. And the res their result was the patient, the patient who received the continuous opioid infusion mixed in with the naloxone had a better outcome than the patient who received it via intermittent bolus dose via PCA. However, there, are, there were two problems, at least two or maybe three problems with this study. For one, they did not uh, control for the amount of morphine that the patient was receiving in the operating room. 
And in fact, they noted that by the time the, time the patients came to PACU, there were more patients in the treatment group that experienced pruritus at time zero in PACU, at the time they arrived in PACU, compared to the control group. That already biases the result in one direction. The other problem is that there were more patients in the, in, the, uh, in the treatment group, I'm sorry, in the control group, who were receiving diphenhydramine-containing antiemetic. And that by itself biases the result even further. So I think we need, we, I don't know how much we can believe the, uh, the results of this study, but I, I mention it because it's, it was a major published study. All right, this the next slide we already talked about. All right, so we talked about opioid-induced pruritus. Let's shift gears and talk about opioid-induced nausea. As recently as last year, Barons and Woods uh, published a meta-analysis of nine randomized controlled studies, and there were 946 adult and pediatric patients, and they, the treatment group received naloxone for 24 hours postoperatively compared to the control group that received uh, just normal saline. And the pooled analysis showed that there was no difference, that this naloxone, this uh, meta-analysis of naloxone in the, in, the, in the treatment group did not provide any advantage. However, there were at least two problems with this meta-analysis. First, um, no, the authors uh, noted that there were three trials uh, for, during which, for which very low dose IV naloxone did sh prove show a decline in the uh, in the show, did show a decline in the in the in the outcome. I'm sorry, in the nausea and vomiting. One of the one of the studies in the meta-analysis was Dr. Gans' study that I, I introduced at the beginning of the lecture. And six of the studies, in six of the studies, the naloxone was mixed in with uh, the, uh, with the opioid. And we already talked about the fact that this was a controversial, this is a controversial issue. So again, I think you need to take this, uh, this result with a grain of salt. However, so I decided to look even further, and we looked at this study by Mauvaffaire in published in 2012. And again, these were 90% uh, undergoing total abdominal hysterectomy. It was a prospective randomized double-blind study. And patients, uh, the treatment group received naloxone at 0.25 microgram per kilogram per hour, and the outcome was significant. If the, the naloxone reduced the morphine consumption and reduced the severity of opioid-induced nausea and vomiting. So when you combine the, the study by Dr. Gann with this study, I think, uh, I think I'm, we can definitely state, uh, state with certainty that uh, in the, at least in the abdominal hysterectomy population, naloxone is useful to reverse opioid-induced nausea. I frankly feel that it would be easy to extrapolate to other patient population, but I'll let you be the judge of that. Right, so we talked about nausea, I'm sorry, pruritus, nausea, and vomiting. What about urinary retention? In 2008, Gallo and uh, other co-authors uh, did an interesting study. 
they randomized 97 orthopedic patients, mostly joint replacement patients, who were receiving a PCA morphine. Now, the study was randomized, but it was not blinded, and I'm not sure why, because I think it would have been easy to do it, but be as it may. The, and they gave the patient, the treatment patient, 0.1, that's 100 microgram of IV naloxone every four hours, so there was no infusion. But if you average this at an infusion rate, it, it turns out to be 0.25 microgram per kilogram per hour. And the results were significant. The patient, the naloxone group, avoided urine more frequently. The residual volume was, as measured by bladder scan, was lower in the naloxone group, significantly lower. All these results were significant. And the number of times that patients were catheterized in the naloxone group was significantly lower than in the in the control group. Again, you have to take this with a grain of salt because the study was not blinded. And uh, they also measured the amount of morphine that was consumed. It was not higher in the naloxone group. So this, keep in mind this number because I'm going to tell you how we use this result in our practice. In 2007, Carl Rosso at the Massachusetts General Hospital and his uh, co-authors Wanted to, were interested in determining what are the mechanisms of opioid-induced uh, urinary retention. And so they, involved, they enrolled 13 healthy male volunteers who were not taking opioids and they were not chronic pain patients. And they divided them, and I'm sorry, they induced um, uh, urinary retention by giving them high-dose IV remifentanil. Some of these volunteers underwent this experiment more than once, just in case you're looking at the numbers. And they divided, once they, this patient, these volunteers developed urinary retention, they divided them into groups. The first group received methylnaltrexone at 0.3 milligram per kilogram, which is a high dose if you think about it, because in a 70 kilo patient, that would mean more than 20 milligram of, uh, uh, of methylnaltrexone. The second group received naloxone at 0.01 milligram per kilogram, and that's also a high dose because on the 70 kilo patient, that would mean 0.7 milligram of IV naloxone. That's almost two ampules of naloxone. But it doesn't matter because these patients were not on opioids and were not chronic pain patients. And the placebo group received saline, and this was a double-blinded study. And the results are as follows. 100% of the patients who received IV naloxone voided. That's seven out of seven. In the naltrexone group, it was five out of 12. And in the placebo group, it was zero out of six. This was a significant difference. And then they went, they did one, they went one first step further. They measured the residual volume. Uh, I, they counted the number of volunteers that had more than 50% in the decreasing bladder volume at the first surge to void. And in that turned out to be five out of seven sessions in, in the naloxone group. 2 out of 12 in the methylnaltrexone group and 0 out of 6 for the placebo group. So they concluded that there's got to be at least some peripheral mechanism to the opioid-induced urinary tension because methylnaltrexone, which did reverse some of the urinary tension, does not cross the broadband barrier. But from my perspective, at least from my perspective, is that we know that, we know that naloxone Will, will reverse opioid-induced urinary tension. The question is, how much can we give to our patients who are on, on the dose? And I'll tell you in a moment, in a couple of minutes, what we do. Okay, so we talk about pruritus, 
nausea, vomiting, urinary retention. What about the ileus? Ileus is a big one because ileus is probably one of the most common reasons for which patients are uh, kept in the hospital uh, after surgery or for other reasons. This is, so um, we know that methylnaltrexone does reverse constipation, induce constipation. Methylnaltrexone and naloxone are steroisomers. So just by being steroisomers doesn't mean that if naltrexone works, naloxone will necessarily work, but it warrants a study. And that's exactly what Zhao, Zhao did in, in China and with his co-authors. They enrolled 72 patients undergoing open colorectal surgery into a prospective randomized controlled study that was double-blinded and done in a, in a single center. And they assigned them to three groups. The first group received small dose IV remifentanil intraoperatively. The second group received large dose remifentanil. And the third group received a large dose remifentanil and naloxone at 0.25 microgram per kilogram per hour. And then they measured the time to recovery to bowel, to bowel function, which turned out to be shorter in the large dose remifentanil plus naloxone group. And that was significant. And then they looked at length of stay, and look at this. It was eight days for the remifentanil naloxone group compared to 12 days for the other two groups, and that was a very significant result. So they concluded that an infusion at that dose prevents the acute opioid tolerance. Well, that's a secondary benefit. And provides a quicker recovery of bowel function and reduced the length of stay in the hospital after open colorectal surgery. So I think that was a significant result. Now, the last indication that I want to discuss today is opioid-induced hyperalgesia. We know that patients who are subjected to large-dose opioid intraoperatively, develop, they develop peri-incisional hyperalgesia, which you can test with fond filament. And that's exactly what Ku and other co-authors did and published last year. They enrolled 91 patients that were undergoing thyroid surgery and assigned it to three groups, so high again, high-dose remifentanil, high-dose remifentanil with naloxone, and low-dose remifentanil. And they concluded that adding low-dose naloxone as low as 0.05 microgram per kilogram per hour to high-dose remifentanil during anesthesia significantly reduced postoperative hyperalgesia. Again, I'm talking about peri-incisional hyperalgesia. So I think, uh, I, think I hope I've convinced you that there is enough evidence to cons- at least consider using uh, IV naloxone, low doses of IV naloxone uh, for opioid-induced side effects. So at Cedars-Sinai, we use the low-dose IV naloxone for pruritus, nausea, vomiting, urinary retention, and ileus. And we, in conjunction with, in collaboration with the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee, we, uh, we came up with, um, again, agreed the protocol for opioid-induced pruritus, nausea, and vomiting, and ileus. The, we start the patient at 0.25 microgram per kilogram per hour, up to maximum 0.5. And the reason 0.5 came up is because some members of the committee wanted to be 100% sure that we were not going to re- reverse some of the uh, opioid-produced uh, analgesia. And uh, in, in terms of the opioid ileus patients, we use them for high-risk patients, colorectal, 
spine, especially the anterior spine surgical patient with anterior approach, and um, hepatobiliary patients, or patients with a high dose opioid greater than 100 milligram MEDB. When it comes to urinary retention, I want to stop here for a moment because um, this, I think in my mind this is an important point. <coughs> if we get a call, receive a call from a nurse that your patient is in urinary retention, I'm about to reinsert the Foley catheter or straight catheter patient, we tell them stop. We're going to give the patient 100 microgram of naloxone, which is what was in the, given in the Gallo study. And in the, in the great majority of patients, the patients void between anywhere between 20 minutes and two hours. If they don't void, then we start them on an infusion at 0.35 microgram per kilogram per hour. But why is this important? We know that in catheterizing the urethra can induce uh, bacteremia. And the patient just are fresh post-op from orthopedic surgery, including spine surgery, that can in, this patient can develop uh, osteomyelitis, which is really lengthy, a lengthy situation, a condition to treat. So uh, we looked at the data, the, the demographics of the data that we, um, of the patients that we uh, treated in the last, in the first six months of this year. There were 140 patients who received an, in, were received an naloxone infusion. 59% were female, 41% were male. The age range varied, varied anywhere from 10, age 10 to up to age 90. So pretty much the whole spectrum. Now, the indication are probably a little more interesting because almost half of the patient received IV naloxone because of ileus. The next category was uh, nausea, nausea and vomiting, 19%, almost 20%. Uh, multiple indication, 15%, pruritus, 11%, and urinary retention, 7%. I just want to fi finalize and uh, end the presentation here by talking about some... Um, examples of how we use it, some clinical vignettes. The first one will, will typify a patient with opioid-induced nausea. This was a 79-year-old female who uh, underwent closure of right chest wall with local flap. She had a thoracic epidural with fentanyl and bupivacaine. By post-op day one, the patient had used 116 milliliters of the epidural in addition to 75 milligrams of scheduled tramadol in the first 24 hours. By post-op day two, the patient had increased the usage of an epidural to two, over 200 milliliter and still receiving 75 milligram of, of tramadol in 24 hours. And she started complaining of nausea. So we gave the patient, started the patient on the dancintron, but by the next day, the patient, even though the patient had used 24 milligram of dancintron in 24 hours, she was still nauseated. So we started the patient on... Uh, an naloxone infusion at 0.25 microgram per kilogram per hour. By the next day, the nausea was completely resolved. Uh, she did not use any odensitron since the initiation of the naloxone drip. And, the pain, we, and we were able to start the patient on oral medication, which is important, an important step to be able to discharge the patient. So we probably saved one, at least one day on the length of hospitalization. In retrospect, we could have started the naloxone infusion on post-op day, on post-op day two, but you know, hindsight is 2020. The second case is a patient. Do you want to add anything else shown on this case? Uh, no, I, I do agree that in hindsight we could have started in post-op day two, 
Uh, also, what we've been doing with our patient population is if we know that the patient have opioid sensitivity, we prophylactically start Narcan or naloxone infusion. Thank you. So this patient is, uh, in, uh, exemplifies in a vignette of a case of, of a patient with opioid-induced pruritus. This was a 40-year-old uh, woman who underwent exploratory laparotomy for total abdominal hysterectomy. She also had a thoracic epidural with fentanyl and bupivacaine. And on, on day one, by day one, she had used 76 milliliter of the epidural solution in 12 hours. But she started complaining of pruritus, and she received a, a dose of diphenhydramine, 12.5 milligram. So at this point, we immediately started uh, naloxone infusion at 0.25 microgram per kilogram per hour because of the concern that once you start giving patients IV diphenhydramine, they become either lethargic or, or they become habituated to, and they don't want to stop it. And by the next morning, the patient, the patient pruritus had resolved completely. She did not use any, did not require any diphenhydramine since the initiation of the naloxone infusion. And the, patient, the patient's pain remained controlled with the epidural. Anything else you want to add on this one? Uh, no, it's just that it's important to control the patient's um, providers' issue because, you know, in the hospital setting, we see a lot of patients who get sedated easily because they get itchy and they've been getting diphenhydramine. So we try to avoid those by now prophylactically giving naloxone. Yeah. So, um, again, uh, the difficulty here is that when you want to start patients on naloxone, there's resistance from the community, I don't know if I mentioned this, from the healthcare physicians. You're going to do what to my patient? You're going to start him on naloxone and, and give him pain? Or if you don't, if we don't warn the patient and the nurses and we order it, we get a frantic call from the nurse. The patient said she doesn't want, she doesn't want IV naloxone because she went on the internet. Or sometimes even sometimes the nurses themselves don't know and tell the patient, we're going to give you this, it's going to help you, but you're going to feel pain. So we need to educate ourselves on this issue. All right, this is a patient with opioid-induced urinary tension. Uh, this is a, a woman, 52-year-old woman, who underwent thoracic laminectomy for repair of CSF leak. And by the way, we are a national referral center for patients with spontaneous CSF leak, so we see a lot of these patients. Uh, the patient was started on uh, oral oxy immediate release and IV hydromorphone for breakthrough pain. But on post one, we were consulted because the patient uh, had, used the, had escalated the opioid usage to over 147 milligram of oral morphine equivalent. So we started a multimodal pain, pain, pain regimen. And um, by the next day, the pain was controlled. The MEDD dropped to 112. By post day three, the patient had developed urinary tension. And unfortunately, she was straight cat without telling us. But nevertheless, we, start, we ordered 100 milligram of, uh, of IV push naloxone, and within hours, the patient voided 200 milliliter of, uh, of urine, and she was discharged the next day. So we probably saved at least one day of our hospitalization. Finally, a patient, and anything else you want to add on this one? Okay. Finally, um, we had the patient, this is an example of a patient with opioid induced delirious. And uh, it was a, uh, this was not a surgical patient. This is a 58 year old woman who was admitted with severe abdominal pain due to chronic constipation because of high opioid use, 
chronic opioid use. Multiple bowel regimen were ineffective. The patient continued uh, complaining of abdominal pain and abdominal distension and constipation. So we were consulted on day two. We started naloxone infusion at 0.25 microgram per kilogram per hour for the opioid-induced delirious. And overnight, the patient had three bowel movements since the initiation of the naloxone drip. Less, the, less abdominal distension and decreased opioid consumption. And this makes you think, reminds us that when patients use opioid, you have to ask them why they're using it. Are they using it for their chronic pain or are they using it for the opioid inducilius? Because they they, in the latter situation, they get into a, into, a vicious, into a vicious cycle. So I hope I've convinced you that um, uh, that there's a, there's a role for low-dose IV naloxone. Uh, our future direction is to continue a retrospective chart review of the patient that will receive naloxone to, to, to compile the treatment outcomes. We're going to convince the, the hospital to let us use naloxone for prophylactic, for prophylaxis and not just for treatment of opioid-induced side effects. And we are going to try to add also opioid-induced hyperalgesia as one of the additional indications for IV naloxone. Thank you very much. And before I, before I forget, if, I, if I'm not able to answer any of your questions today, uh, feel free to email us. Uh, the email address is on the last slide. All right. You have a question. Yes. So the question is, uh, since this has been known for almost 20 years, actually for 20 years, and why has it been caught on? I, I think because you have to be careful and not to... What, what happens in medicine, somebody tries and some of the papers will tell you that you can go as high as 1.65 microgram per kilogram per hour. Well, at that dose, you're going to start your reversal. It takes one negative outcome and, you know, knee-jerk reflexes, I'm never going to use this again. So it really probably should be done by people who either have read the literature or by somebody who's, in, who's familiar with the, the dosages, like the pain service or, and the others, or, or palliative care services will probably use it. Does that answer your question? Um, I would add that um, in, our, in our practice, the pharmacy would only allow us to use it for about three days. Yeah, there, there, there is an issue of cost. In our institution, it costs about $14 per bag. And so you have to be able to prove it to pharmacy that you'll be able to do that. Question from Uh, with ERAS, um, it may get in the way of, of letting a bag hang for two, three days because you're trying to get the patient out, try to mobilize them. And so having, I mean, I, can, I saw this back in the 90s uh, for a little bit in the OBGYN world, but uh, it was the dose was higher. But, um, you know, some of the things that, like for itching and paritis, using now 2.5, 
the low dose nalbufene will last longer. I wonder how long did the, on the urinary retention, did the 100 mic dose last? How long was it effective? And did you still have problems? In six so, so on the urinary retention, uh, 100 microgram of naloxone can induce urinary voiding up to two hours. The question, I guess your question is, will it last for the whole after that? I think if you want to do that and you don't want to give an infusion, you can give 100 microgram every four hours, like they, they did in the Gallo study. And it's less, probably cheaper. The only caution I have about that is that sometimes the nurses can make a mistake, okay? You know, and because they take a micro syringe and draw, and if you're off by one millimeter, now you're over the 100 microgram by a lot. So if you're going to do that, I tell the nurses, take a 0.4 milligram ampule, dilute it if you want 1 to 10, and then give 2.5 cc's. That's one way. Or dilute it 1 to 4 and give 1 cc. That will give it, that's more precise than taking a micro syringe, drawing a concentrated amount of naloxone, and then, and then pushing it and flushing it with the, with the normal saline. So single doses using multiple Well, it depends. In our institution, in our institution, you know, the cost is because pharma, nurses are not allowed to mix a bag. So it has to go through pharmacy. So that's the real cost for us. But in other institutions, it may not be. And then every once in a while, there's also shortages. You know, at one point, I think there was a shortage on the locks. Does that answer your question? Okay. And if, I, just, if I may just add, Dr. Louis, that, of course, we have to hopefully wean the patient on the opioid so that way it won't recur and have yeah. urinary retention issues as well. That's the most important part, definitely. Question. Fusion. What is the concentration that you're mixing concentration. the... Concentration. Do you, do you happen uh, to know? The order... Um, I think it's 2, uh, two milligram in, uh, in, in 500 cc's. Right. And you said you, you go up to three days on, on yes. certain indications? Yes. Okay. Up to three days, yeah. Any other question? Okay, question here in front. Do you use actual body weight in your obese patients as well when you... Do it? Yeah, we yes. do. We do. You do? Okay. Uh, so we haven't had, no dose cap but we haven't, based on their weight or anything? I, I do. Uh, and uh, if you come to the, our talk tomorrow, we do the same thing with ketamine. Okay. We haven't had any major reversal. But, you know, you, I, you never know. It may happen, and you probably should watch for it. Okay. Yeah. And then if you stop the infusion and you're trying to get someone on orals, do you keep them around for a few doses of orals to make sure they you know, don't get that same itching? Once you turn the infusion sometimes, off? Sometimes we do that, yes. Okay. Uh, but I think we, need, we try to wean the patient off by the time we get, get into oral. But this will work for oral opioids, as you mm-hmm. saw mm-hmm. in the patient with the constipation. Okay. It doesn't have to be just parenteral opioids. And if I may just add that we use it for pediatric patients yeah. all the time. Yeah, we use it, as I said, the, the younger patient was 10. For we use it. Question. I'm covering for practical pain management. I was told you, what do you think are the one or two tips from your talk and your research that are of most interest to clinicians? Well, I, I think that, first of all, uh, clinical common sense and clinic, uh, patient comfort. And the second one is decrease of length of, length of stay. 
which is a hot topic these days, you know, because we have to look at those. And decreasing the length, hospital length of stay, I think those are the two topics, I would say. Question? Have you guys expanded this outside of the surgical population to like an acute pancreatitis patient who's on high-dose opioids, or do you think it would be applicable there? Yes. Yeah, we use for patients with pancreatitis. Yeah. I don't think it's a, so. Now the issue you just brought up something that just reminded me. What about the patient who may have, who may have a, a small bowel obstruction? If it's partial, we use it. Then for the longest time, um, we decided we we thought that patient who has a complete bowel obstruction should not receive IV naloxone because for fear of we know that you, they should not receive Redistor, but but. Um, so we restricted, we want to be 100% sure. Although, personally, I think that the IV naloxone will only reverse the component of the ileus that's added by the opioid. So if the patient, it will not increase motility, although Chona and I have argued on this issue because Chona found a paper that shows that naloxone by itself can be a prokinetic agent. So... I don't know the answer to that, so I'm going to say do not use it right now for, for patients with complete small bowel obstruction. Perhaps if we talk about this next year, I'll have more information. Right. So if I may just add, so we basically just do it case by case. Um, if it's partial obstruction, then we have to talk to the GI. So we wanted to make sure. There's a question again again here. If you just wait for the mic, hang on one second. Just curious if you've noticed anecdotally if you've had a decrease in your opioid requirements or perceived decrease in these Yes, yeah, so I, I did not talk about this. But there is, uh, there is actually a model uh, that, uh, in fact, when I talk about that second G protein, which is called the G sub S protein, when low-dose avinaloxone bind into the scaffolding that connects this G protein to the to the mu receptor, we do get, you do uh, get a decrease in opioid tolerance, not, not just, um, not just in decrease in opioid-induced hyperalgesia. So that model explains why some clinicians, I've seen some of these studies, you do see a decrease in opioid, in, uh, opioid requirement. I didn't talk about it because I think I, before I make a statement uh, about the validity, I want to research the literature more more in, the, in depth. But yes, the answer, there is a model about this. There's another question over there. Yes, I'm just wondering if you've tried any oral naloxone? We did not, because we don't have it available on formulary. I know it's the hot topic of every, this is my fourth year at Pain Week, and there's always this discussion. We would love it to be able to include it in ERAS protocols that we're currently developing. But I think, frankly, um, patients are on IVs anyhow, postoperatively. So one more pump attached, attached to the brain uh, should, not, should not be more cumbersome. Uh, I think we have to be cost conscious. There's no question about that. One more question. One more question. Do you, is there a feeling that immediately perioperative, some of the hyperalgesic um, uh, peri-incisional
So the, the question is, can you reverse the peri, postoperative peri-incisional hyper, opioid-induced hyperalgesia with intraoperative naloxone? The, the answer is yes. It's, in fact, uh, I have to go back have to check if I mentioned that. I may have forgotten to mention that. But uh, I don't remember. Yeah, because actually some of these patients received, received the remifentanil with naloxone, with naloxone as well, not, not mixed in together. And that had a positive effect. So the, the answer to your question is yes. Intraoperative naloxone does help. It's on slide 15. The study. Yeah. The, it's the, the, the West study. Oh, actually, no, not just the it's West cool. study. Which one? Co? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. The, let me find it here. This one. There, there was intraoperative remifentanil and naloxone. Question. So you, you're talking about opioid-induced hyperalgesia in general, not just in surgical patients. Yes. Yeah. So um, I don't know the answer to that, whether, but uh, it's an interesting question. Uh, I think it's something that we may worth looking right. for um, an, a next presentation. Right, for yeah. the ketamine presentation. Uh, yeah, yeah. definitely with ketamine. Mm-hmm. Any other feedback or questions, uh, ways to improve the presentation? or you can write it anonymously. But definitely uh, do, do give us a, send us an email um, if you have any questions. Uh, I would love to start cooperating with people and try to spread uh, the word about uh, Avinaloxone. Thank you.